Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In 1957, director Sidney Lumet and star Henry Fonda gave us a tense and claustrophobic film about the struggles faced by a death row jury. In 2019, the Sazerac Company tries to pass off a two-year-old whiskey as very old. <laughs> the film is 12 Angry Men. The whiskey is very old Barton. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey, Whiskey Podcast. Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. And I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 1957 film, 12 Angry Men. Now, Brad. Now, we're, Bob. We're working our way through this list of about 150 movies. We've randomized them in Wait order. Wait a second. 150? You've seen the list, man. <laughs> I didn't look all the way down it. Brad has not read the whole list of movies. <laughs> so which is why movies. he's never heard of Raging Bull or anything we talk about on this so list. so many movies. Yeah, you're locked in for years, bro. Wow. <laughs> well, I guess I'm stuck with Bob and uh, all you listeners, so... Yeah, so here we go. Get going. All right, so have you ever seen 12 Angry Men? Uh, I have now. You have not? Before this viewing, though? <laughs> no, I've never you seen 12 You had not 12 seen 12 Angry Men. Angry Men. All right, so this was your first viewing. Yes. I've probably seen it a handful of times. I'd say maybe five times now. Like, a, you know... It's a short movie. It's yeah. a good watch. A lot of people How watch this movie. It? It's like about an hour, hour and a half. Okay, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a pretty quick watch. A lot of people watch it like in high school, yep. in like a government class or something like that. So this was your first exposure to it. This movie came out in 1957. It was the feature debut of director Sidney Lumet, who would become one of the biggest directors in Hollywood. He'd go on to direct such movies as Network and Dog Day Afternoon. This was Henry. Don't even don't even go there, Brad. More movies that I have never heard of. <laughs> Dog Day Afternoon is a great movie. Really? I think we'll get to that at some point. Is yeah. it kind of like Reservoir Dogs? Uh, no, not quite. It does have Al Pacino in, really? I think, his best role of all time. Really? Yeah, great movie. Wow. So this movie does not have Al Pacino. It stars Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb. Would uh, the movie have been better if Al Pacino was in No, absolutely not. <laughs> you gotta come on and we're gonna convict this guy. <laughs> Just like screaming the, with his weird spiked hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah it'd be all great. Right. This movie won zero Oscars. Really? Even though it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Huh. So, Brad, as you went into this movie, what did you know about it and what did you expect from it? Moving into the movie, I don't think I knew anything about it. Based on the DVD box, I could tell that it was a courtroom mm -hmm. movie. Um, and the fact that it was 12 and that's kind of a jury number. Sure. It started to make sense that it was a courtroom drama. And knowing that it was a courtroom drama, I was like, why would anybody make a movie unless it was about the death row? Sure. You know what I mean? So I, I kind of had those. And they weren't like a, like a parking ticket jury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I kind of had a few preconceived notions um, that I think most people would probably come to if they knew the basics of the movie. Right. But other than that, I didn't really know anything about it. 
Now, Brad, you have someone sitting to your left who is going to be the first guest host of the Film and Whiskey podcast. It's our friend Jordan McCain. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So what makes you want to join a film that talks about films and whiskey? Join a podcast? A film about films yes. and whiskey. Podcast time. <laughs> it's a mix of loves. It's a mix of loves because uh, I enjoy talking about movies. I've kind of been given a love for movies from my dad and have really <laughs> gone deeply into some aspects. Like uh, I keep a track of every movie I've ever seen. And How I many know movies have you seen now? I'm at 12. 868 movies, individual movies right. that aren't rewatches. We got to pump those numbers up, man. Yeah, those yeah, are yeah, rookie yeah. numbers. They've, I'm shooting for a thousand next year. I That's what I want to get to. Made that many movies. Yeah. Um, oh, Brad. <laughs> I also just just show you my personality. I have calculated how many minutes, days, months, and then what percentage of my life that is, which I usually hover around one percent of my life watching movies. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's a good impressive. percentage. Yeah, it's it's kind of disappointing in some ways because when you think about what you could be doing with one percent, every your life. ninety-nine minutes he actually just takes a break and watches one minute of movie. <laughs> there it is <laughs> to, to keep it. <laughs> uh, and I love podcasts. I love the format of podcasting. I think it's creative. I think it's a revival of some really good audio. It's a great thing to listen to on the car. Sure. Yeah. So. I'm happy to be here. Shout and out to we all talked, our car listeners right whoop, whoop, whoop. now. Yeah. We talked about this the other day that like young people now don't form bands. Yeah. They start a podcast. That's yeah. right. It's true. It's kind of the, it's the American dream. We're basically the Beatles of podcasting now. Ooh. We just need a Ringo. Yeah. Let's start looking. <laughs> so Jordan, had you ever seen this movie before? Yeah. I saw it just like you were saying in high school. Okay. And I had no concept for the film. I didn't, hadn't really seen very many older movies. Mm -hmm. And it quickly became one of my favorite movies of yeah, it's all time. Great. I think it's so good. And so Sidney Lumet had actually been working in television. This was his feature debut. Henry Fonda had heard about some of the things he'd done. He'd seen him on TV. And so Henry Fonda put up the money for this movie. It was a really cheaply made movie. I think it only cost like $300,000 or hmm. something to make this movie. There's one set. One yeah, set of absolutely. Costumes. And so he thought we can make this on a really small scale and we need a guy who's good working on these sort of smaller sets. So why not go to television? Sure. So Henry Fonda gets Sidney Lumet to come over. And the movie had actually been a TV play, a, a telenovela or whatever you want to call it, and uh, by Reginald Rose. And so Rose adapted his own screenplay into this movie. What do we think about the screenplay? I think that the screenplay communicated the core philosophies of the movie extremely well. Mm-hmm. In the fact that the movie is so tight. Sure. That it's very tightly wound. It's very tense. It's very uh, claustrophobic. It pulls you into that room and will not let you go until the very final minute. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's one of the most beautiful things about the movie is the is literally the final scene where they all just kind of wander away. Yeah. There, there was something about that that just captured my heart. Where you're just like, you're stuck in this tense yeah. dis debate about a man's life, mm -hmm. about literally killing a man for having killed another man. Like, the 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 stakes couldn't be higher, but then there's this weird sense of like, but life goes on. Yeah, sure. And these jurors could have convicted him or let him go free, and their lives would have moved on either way. Sure. I think the screenplay for this movie really does convey some of that. And, and the great thing that Reginald Rose does is that he gives each of his characters – through their dialogue, you start to understand what they're hiding underneath their sort of facades. You know, you've got uh, uh, juror number 10 who comes out at one point and says, don't give me that. I'm sick and tired of the facts. Yeah. He doesn't want to hear the facts anymore. Yeah. And he's the guy that has the big sort of racist tirade towards right? the end of the movie. It's my favorite scene. Yeah. It's you, so good. It's a good one for sure. But to Brad's point, 
I think this is one of those movies where you get a director and a screenwriter working in tandem so well that you can't really separate one from the other. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the, the language used in the movie definitely ramps up as the sort of camera angles and the technical aspects make it more and more claustrophobic. And then you get this release at the end of the movie of this huge wide angle lens. You see them all walking away. And I love that the last line of the movie is just Henry Fonda's character and the old man's character, number nine, talking to each other. And then they just say, well, so long. And that's the <laughs> last line of the movie. Yeah. yeah. And it really imparts this sense that they're doing a duty and really profound things happen in this room. And then you just go. What have any of you guys ever been called jury duty? I have n- I have evaded jury duty to this point in my life. Same. Really? They're going to get me now, now that you mentioned three it. Three times I've been chosen, and three times I have huh. succeeded in getting out of it. Yeah, Good I, was, you. I yeah. was asked to do it once, literally, like, right after I had turned 18. Yeah. And I just was like, well, I'm heading off to college, so... And, and you got I, out of it? And I didn't go. Good for you, man. That was it. Yeah, I don't know how I've made it 10 years without it, but... Yeah. Your boy stay blessed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you asking us to accept a pretty incredible coincidence? I'm just saying a coincidence is possible. And I say it's not possible. Where did that come from? It's the same night. You're doing. Where did you get it? I went out walking for a couple of hours last night. I walked through the boys' neighborhood. I bought that in a little pawn shop just two blocks from the boys' house. It cost six dollars. It's against the law to buy or sell switchblade knives. That's right. I broke the law. Listen, you pulled a real bright trick. Now, supposing you tell me what it proves. Maybe there are ten knives like that. So what? Maybe there are. Well, what does it mean? You found another knife like it. What's that, the discovery of the age or something? You mean you're asking us to believe that somebody else did the stabbing with exactly the same kind of knife? The odds are a million to one. It's possible, but not very probable. What do we think about the acting in this movie? So you've got... Huge, colossal megastar, Henry Fonda. And again, he's on the tail end of his career. But he's really kind of putting his neck out by producing this movie. Um, Obviously, we're going to get into this later. There's definitely some political undertones to this movie in the time that it was released. So he was taking some risks here. And he's putting his face on the screen. So the first one I think we should talk about is Henry Fonda. What did you guys think of Fonda's performance in this movie? I think it's interesting, Brad, what you were saying earlier, is he doesn't really, aside from his viewpoint from the very beginning... He doesn't really stand out. Yeah. He really seems like a normal everyday dude mm-hmm. who gets called to jury duty. Right. With a different kind of idea. Yeah, he kind of he comes into the situation being open to the possibility that the boy didn't commit murder. Totally. Mm-hmm. And I and I feel like that underlies his entire thing. I think there are certain points where that outlook gets lost where he kind of does get passionate about Mm -hmm. his point of view and you wonder if he came into it predisposed to thinking he didn't do it Mm -hmm. but you look at it overall and i think he does a good job of portraying the idea of like hey like i know all of you are convinced of this but let's just take an extra minute to think through what if he didn't yeah and where should that lead us to you know what's interesting i didn't think about this until now but is he one of the jurors that we know the least about his backstory even though he has the most lines number eight yeah number eight we know a lot about a lot of these different guys backstories like Mm -hmm. does he even say i think at the end of the movie he says he's an architect oh Uh, that's when he's in when he's in the bathroom with the other guy okay yeah yeah. he says that he's an architect but that's it but other than that and we know that he walks around the ghetto to go find a knife. But other, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so he might, he's committed to something, but we don't really know anything else about him. So there's a couple guys in this movie that I think are kind of pitted against each other. Obviously, you have juror number eight, Henry Fonda, 
And number three is the last holdout, Lee J. Cobb. Yeah. But I think if you're really looking for like an analog for Henry Fonda's character, I look at number four, the guy who the whole movie is like, we have to be logical. And he keeps a very calm demeanor. He never sweats. I see Henry Fonda and his whole MO in this movie is he doesn't get riled up. He always keeps an optimistic outlook and he stays calm. And I think I see that kind of character in a lot of movies around this time period. So if you go back a few years, and I'm sure Brad hasn't seen this movie, but uh, <laughs> the movie High Noon, it's an old Western, um, where, uh, where Gary Cooper, have you seen High Noon? I've seen High oh, Noon. Oh, good. So Gary Cooper has to be like standing alone against all right. these people. And right. even though he's scared, his his character is the silent, strong type. You see it again in a couple years after this movie with Atticus Finch, Game yes. to Kill a Mockingbird, right. the guy spitting on his face and Atticus. Another movie I have seen. All right, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I also Super don't true. think that those kind of roles lend themselves to like amazing performances. Right. We look back on Gary Cooper and we're like, oh, he was kind of wooden and stiff in that movie. And I kind of feel that way with Henry Fonda here. But I wonder, is it that Fonda just kind of turned in a ho-hum performance or was it just that that's how the character is written? Right. You know? Hmm. Is it like the stoicism of supposed objectivity? Maybe. I don't don't know what it was like to live in 1957. Yeah. Uh, But it could be like this weird representation of this is what it means to be objective and to be rational is to be also completely emotionless. Except like you said, it, Brad, at certain points, he does kind of get like pounds his fists on the table and says, I'm just saying it's possible. You yeah, know? sure. Which is but it's also an expression of rationality of like pure objectivity is like, well, yeah, of course it is possible. Right. Which is something we're going to get into because at the end of the day, and I'm going to tip my hand here a little bit, that kid probably killed his dad. Like, let's be real here. Kid probably did it. Really? You think so? In real life, the the number of coincidences, I mean, I'm not, again, and I'm not saying it's not possible. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah. I look forward to this conversation. But before we go there, what other performances in this movie stuck out to you? I think the old man obviously really stands out. Uh, juror number juror, nine. Juror number nine. Yeah. He is like really quiet, but he's the first one to ally himself with Henry Fonda's character. Yep. He also stands out because they do these really interesting close-ups on his face where he fills up the entire screen and stares directly into the camera. He does. Which really freaked me out every time I see it. That was probably the only like technical part of like the camera work (laughs) that was done that I thought was just... So the the cool thing about that movie, though, is that there were over 300 different camera angles in that movie. And almost none of them were used more than once. So they literally, it was like a 360 view. And what Sidney Lumet did was he started the movie off with all the cameras positioned above eye level, kind of Mm -hmm. looking down on people or looking at them as equals, right? Right. When When you put the camera at eye level or below eye level, you're looking up at someone and it gives them a position of power. When you're looking at them from above, it puts them in a position of powerlessness. And as the movie goes on, the position of the camera starts to kind of tilt down and down and down. And you see these people shouting down at each other and the cameras get closer and closer. It really does build into this claustrophobic effect that you get in the movie. I don't know if you guys felt that as well, Mm -hmm. but from the beginning of the movie to the end, you really get sucked into the thing. Yeah. I remember the start of the movie. You get a lot of it almost feels like you'd be a security camera. Looking from the corner of the room, like panning the room. Sure. that It kind of feels like that. And it does slowly yeah. move closer and closer. And it really, the obvious parts are the old man. Yeah. Like Jordan, you just said, where it's a close up of the old man's face and he's real like wide eyed. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you can like feel the heat too. They do such a good job communicating that it's supposed to be really hot in that room. Everybody is like drenched all mm-hmm. the time and they keep getting wetter and wetter and wetter. I think that's, I've never seen it communicated that well. 
You know, I saw somebody commenting on a post online about the movie and they said you can't neglect the fact either that for the whole second half of the movie, there's like a storm outside. Right. And that just that sound of the rain as a kind of hiss in the background and, and occasional thunderclaps, without that, I don't think it would make the movie as intense as it right. as it does. But it really – you almost have to listen harder to what they're saying. And so you're really on the edge of your seat for a good portion of this movie. Well, there's that common human experience of when you're sitting in your house in the middle of the summer during a rainstorm, mm-hmm. you can't go outside yeah. and do what you want to do. Yeah. And so it kind of gives that – it lends itself to being like these jurors literally can't get they're out. They're stuck there. They're yeah. stuck in the heat. They're stuck – Yeah. I want to point out, I think my favorite performance in the whole movie is juror number three, Lee J. Cobb, who is your main antagonist, I right. guess, if you want to call him that. What did you guys think of Cobb and his performance in this movie? I, I think he really represents the disconnect between generations. Uh-huh. This idea that a father genuinely wants the best for his children, but oftentimes doesn't know what that best thing is. Mm-hmm. And it leads to tension and strife. Which, again, is a common human experience of you love your family, but you don't know how to get along with your Mm -hmm, family. mm -hmm. And it leads to words and actions that are said and done that have permanent consequences and lead to you being estranged and separated. Absolutely. And he beautifully holds out on that for a really long time till the very end when you realize he's just an angry father that misses his son. Absolutely. You get these really small glimpses that are very, like, naturalistic. And when you finally do see him break down at the end and and he tears up the the picture, but then you see him kind of say no to himself before he collapses on himself. I just think – Yeah. And I think I contrast him because the other person who was highly passionate was – Juror number I think 10, 10, the racist guy. The racist guy who is – I would say matches his intensity. Right. But the difference is – I don't think he walked away from that room and stopped being racist. Right. Whereas I'm pretty sure that juror number three walked away from that room and called his son and tried to repair that Mm. relationship. Yeah, sure. So there's something redeeming about his passion that you don't find in juror number 10. Yeah. Yeah. What I think there's a lot of motifs and themes that help this movie age really well. And I would agree with you, Brad, that the father-son dynamic, especially in a generation of people who are continually fatherless and to a much wider degree fatherless uh i and something i can kind of feel with them i think they just portray that super well i think the expectations of your father the Mm -hmm. way that they can feel overbearing or claustrophobic is a good word that kind of talks about this whole movie uh the desire to control the outcomes of your children is like just super fascinating i just think they do a really good job communicating that and that gets us back to the writing again. Yeah. I think the writing in this movie is just phenomenal. Reginald Rose gives every character in this movie a motivation for what they're doing, and they start to slowly come out. And you you finally see that some are even more deeply rooted than others. You know, the racist guy, he he pretty much wears his racism on his sleeve. Yeah. Like, you know it's coming. And then when it finally comes, it's so out there and it's so ridiculous right. that all the other jurors are just tuning him out and turning their backs And that's what I love is that they're not all united against Henry Fonda for the same reason. Everyone has their own reason for thinking why this guy is guilty. And in fact, the, uh, you know, the quote unquote antagonists, they hate each other sometimes. Lee J. Cobb has his first blow up 
and then apologizes to juror number four, the really logical guy. And mm-hmm. he says, oh, he was just trying to work me up. And number four said, well, he certainly did a good job. Yes, you know? that's such a great line. <laughs> they don't want to be on each other's side. So right. it's not that they're arriving at this conclusion for the same reason. Right. Honestly, that that was one of my favorite parts of the movie is how well it portrayed how individuals can come from separate places to try to argue for the same end result. Mm -hmm. And it really made me think about like, especially today's political spectrum that people fall upon where, and I think it's why people are so dissatisfied with the two faced nature of politics where it's like, sure, I might be more conservative, but I don't really want to be a Republican or I might be a little more liberal, but I don't want to be a Democrat. Mm -hmm. They don't represent everything of who I am. Right. And I think this movie perfectly portrays that because you have 12 people, 11 of which thought that this boy committed murder. Right. But all for very different reasons. Sure. And they're all convinced by very different reasons that he didn't commit the murder. And I thought it was so effective how they conveyed their annoyance with each other. And part of that is because Lumet got everyone together for rehearsals a couple weeks before this movie started. And he actually took up some of the shooting time with it. And he would make them sit in a room together, all 12 of them, and repeat their lines over and over and over and over until they got annoyed with each other because he wanted them to understand what it was like to be in a confined space with someone you don't really know wow. to the point that you're getting frustrated with. That's them. super That's interesting. That's a new kind of character acting. That's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Definitely. So you guys have talked a little bit about your favorite moments or scenes. If you had to pull one out to talk about, what's what's a moment that sticks out to you from this film? It's beyond a shadow of a doubt when juror number 10 stands up mm-hmm. and goes on his tirade about the type of people those are, what they do, how they're perceived, yeah. and one by one, each juror either stands up and walks away to go look at the window, mm-hmm. or they just turn to the side, sitting at the table, and occupy themselves with some of the ad guys drawing on with his their little smartphone. piece of paper. Yeah, which would be a smartphone, but the guy's <laughs> drawing on his piece of paper, yeah. thinking about this thing. And that's that's why I think juror number 10 is so interesting, because they portray him as a, I'm going to use the word, bastion of racism, or this kind of characterization of racism, and then you immediately introduce juror number 11, who's the German immigrant, who's mm-hmm. the exact kind of person. Or uh, number five, who's like the slum dog, uh, who's also from the same kind of area. And they keep clashing and they never acknowledge the guy, the guy, the racist guy is always looking for a friend. Every time he makes one of those comments, he like looks he around. He says like, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. To see who's going to like nod and agree with him. Yeah. And they never acknowledge him. And, you know, and, I, the, the phrase that I wrote down for that scene, I just put ignoring ignorance. Yes. Because his, what he's saying is so nonsensical. Yes. And so built on falsehoods and these deeply rooted angers yeah. that the only response to it is just to turn away. It's and then a two-year-old tantrum. You get the, you get juror number four. You know, he basically says, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And juror yeah. number four says, I have listened to you. Now sit down and don't open your mouth again. Yes. Yeah. I love it, man. Yes. Yeah. So good. Look, you know how these people lie? It's born in them. I mean, what the heck? I don't have to tell you. They don't know what the truth is. And let me tell you, they don't need any real big reason to kill someone either. No, sir. They get drunk. Oh, they're real big drinkers, all of them. You know that. And bang, someone's lying in the gutter. Nobody's blaming them for it. That's the way they are, by nature. You know what I mean? Violent. Where are you going? Human life don't mean as much to them as it does to us. Look, they're rushing it up and fighting all the time. And if somebody gets killed, so somebody gets killed, they don't care. Oh, sure, there's some good things about them, too. Look, I'm the first one to say that. 
I've known a couple who were okay, but that's the exception, you know what I mean? Most of them like they have no feelings. They can do anything. What's going on here? Well, I'm, I'm trying to tell you. You're making a big mistake, you people. This kid is a liar. I know it. I know all about them. Listen to me. I don't remember exactly <laughs> when Henry Fonda says this, but at the one point he's talking to another juror. I think it's in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about one of the other jurors, and he just he says that he's like he can't hear you. He never he never will. will. Yeah. And that line just, oh man, that yeah. hits you so deep where you just go, man, what what areas of my own life am I not listening yes. to something and mm-hmm. will never listen to something? Well, juror number ten's conflict is he wants community and intimacy, and that's what he's looking for every time he makes one of those statements, mm. and he can't find it, and he won't be able to find it through his own hatred. He's and yeah. his final thing is a tirade tantrum to get somebody to pay attention to him, and uh, it's not going to work. He's got the wrong means, yeah. and that's what I feel like is the message of his character: is sure. that hatred pushes people away every time. If there's one other scene to me that sticks out, and I've mentioned it already, but uh, it's the the end with juror number three's right. breakdown. Yeah. And the great thing that Lumet does is he starts to frame the jurors more and more closely to the point where you get these sort of like German expressionist shots of like a, like a two shot of <laughs> right. two guys face. And they're so close together that it wouldn't really work like that in real right. life. But they're staring him down. And his arguments just fall by the wayside. Everything he was saying, it just eventually becomes an appeal to his emotions. And then you finally get him lashing out at his son again. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Brought tears to my eyes. I thought that yeah. performance was just so it great. Beautiful. Phenomenal. I, I think the thing I loved most about this movie was that it portrayed stereotypes that one could easily put on any of these people. Oh, he's just an old racist white guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's just an angry father. Oh, he's just a cold, heartless, logical thinking person for juror number uh, four. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, the more you look at these characters, the more they're personified, you realize that you can't just stereotype them, that there's reasons they've come to become who they are. That, sure. and And that's most obviously typified with juror number three, that... The reason he hates this young boy and thinks he killed him is because he hates his own son yeah. and the relationship that he has yeah. with him. And so I, I love that it, it points out how you can stereotype all you want, but in the end, each individual human being has reasons for why they are the way they are, for who they are, mm-hmm. and you can't just discount their voice because of those stereotypes yeah. you hold against them. And it's that sort of layering that I think makes this screenplay hold up. Because it doesn't really get heavy-handed. There's only a couple moments for me that are like, all right, they're really hamming it up. Like right. when the, the immigrant guy gives his speech about, you know, America. And yeah. I, that's the only time where I was like, okay, like let's, you know. <laughs> but do you think that that's a modern perspective on that? Because back then America still was something that – like that That man, if the character is true, he had survived through World War II, World War One. I. I totally get that. But what Reginald Rose is trying to do here – and we'll get to this a little bit later – He's in the middle of the McCarthy era communist witch hunts right. right now. Yeah. And so this movie is literally just him talking about, you know, the the upright people who want to stand up for American rights versus the people that are witch hunting. Right. And so in that context, I wonder, did the immigrant speech sound too on the nose? You know what I mean? Like, did he tip his hand too much? And did people say like, oh, okay, I get what you're doing here when the immigrant opened his mouth in that way. But anyway, all that to say, guys, I think it's time for us to sip on a little bit of bourbon. What do you think? Sounds good. I need to wet my palate. (laughs) 
All right, so today we are drinking Very Old Barton, 80 For proof. a very old movie. That's right. So Very Old Barton is actually a really interesting company because they, they bottle at four different proofs. They've got an 80, an 86, a 90, and a 100 proof. Really? We are just drinking the lowest proof one, the 80 proof. It is labeled as a Kentucky straight whiskey, which we talked a little bit about last episode, meaning it has to be done in Kentucky. For two years. Two years in the barrel. So this has been in the barrel two years. I do think it's funny that it's called very old because it's it's only two years old. But I already sense a significant improvement over what we had last time, which was benchmark. One might say it's raising the bar. Hey, what do you guys think? On the nose, what did you uh, pick up when you stuck your nose down that uh, glass there? What'd you think? <laughs> Sorry, I just about uh, lost it there trying to stick my nose down the glass. Yep. So I picked up a lot of maple. Uh, obviously not at first. You just get ethanol. But um, after my <laughs> after my first sip, I really gave it another go. And I got a lot of maple on it. Um, you do get a little bit of corn. And obviously the oak is still really present there. Um, but not super complex. Yeah. It was, yeah. I thought that corn, kind of malty corn, mm-hmm. really uh, translated through pretty well. On the nose, at least. Malty corn. Malty corn. Mm. Mm. Is that like a unicorn? But yes. It has multi horns. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple horns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Multi horns. Right. <laughs> on the taste, what'd you guys think? I, you know, I thought this was significantly more complex than Benchmark. I got a lot of spice. I got a lot of like a peppery taste. I don't know. What'd you guys think? I don't know. Seriously, did you taste anything on it or? It tasted good. Yeah. Delicious. All right. Was it sweet or was it bitter? Um, I would say that this was honestly a good mix. It wasn't. It wasn't terribly sweet. It wasn't terribly bitter. Mm-hmm. Um, it blended well in my mouth. Yep. And you know, I thought it was pretty good. I'd give it six, six and a half. Yeah. Jordan, how about you? Yeah, I, I feel pretty much the same. I have a really hard time discriminating the taste of whiskeys, but I didn't think it tasted bad yeah. or watery or anything. I think it was full of flavor, whatever that flavor was. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the problem that we're doing this month, too, is we're drinking four bourbons this month. Right. So we really need to break into something else. We need to, like, throw scotch in the mix because yeah. when you start drinking scotch and you really get into the peaty, smoky taste, you can definitely tell when you're drinking a bourbon. Right. Bourbon's, like, way sweeter. Um, so I definitely got some of that sweetness, way more sweetness than with the benchmark last week. Uh, and on the finish, I thought the finish was good. Lots of spice on my tongue. But it wasn't it wasn't burning my chest. That, the way that was the big thing for them both being 80 proof compared to the benchmark. This one was much smoother. Yeah. On the finish, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would totally agree. I that was the first thing I noticed was how smooth. Would you guys score the finish? Uh, six or seven. OK, six. I gave it a six as well. And then overall balance. I mean, we're talking nose, taste and finish as it all kind of goes down across the board. I gave this whole thing a six. I mm-hmm. thought it was an above average bourbon. Uh, it only costs like I think thirteen or fourteen dollars. It's a good. really low, yeah, inexpensive bourbon. And for what you're getting, I could drink it neat. I could drink it with you know a couple ice cubes. Mm-hmm. If you want to mix it, you can mix It'd it. Be a great mixer. Yeah. yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's last week's benchmark is a mixer well bourbon. This is something that I could drink on its own. Sure, if I was looking for something. So guys, what were your final scores? Because I came out to a twenty four. I gave sixes across the board. Hmm. I gave a five, six and a half, six, and six and a half mm-hmm. to come out to 24. Hey. I gave it a 23. 23. There so go. we're talking 23.6. <laughs> there it is. For our, for our average here. There it so, is. yeah, slightly above average. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's definitely worth 13 bucks. You know, yeah, if, you're, if you're really looking for an inexpensive bourbon, if you're looking to kind of break into bourbons without breaking the bank, like yeah. this is 
the way to go. Yeah, last week we came out to an 18 out of 40 for the benchmark. And I think the thing that really pushed this above was the finish mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. It finished so smoothly compared to the benchmark that it definitely bumped it up a few notches. And I do think that we can't take the price out of the equation. You know, like Brad oh, said sure. last week, if I had paid $50 for this bottle... <laughs> or if we were doing a blind tasting and I didn't mention the one price, out of 40. Yeah, I don't think I would rate it as highly. But you really do have to consider for the average consumer, money is an op- uh, uh, an obstacle. Totally. And yeah. for what I paid for it, I'm satisfied. Super. Yep. Agreed. Awesome. So what do you guys say? We talk a little bit more about 12 Angry Men. What? what? Mm. So let's get back into 12 Angry Men. Okay. This movie came out in 1957, but it failed to make a profit. It Mm. actually flopped at the box office. Really? Yeah. Part of it was because there had been this movie a few years before called Marty that was an an indie film. And it caught on so much by word of mouth that it it was a huge success. It won Best Picture. Okay. Henry Fonda wanted to release this movie that way. He was the producer. So he said, "Let's, let's play it at small, independent art house theaters. And the studio said, no, you're Henry Fonda. We're going to give this a huge wide release and we're going to play it at like, you know, the Chinese theater. And so when they opened this movie, it was in a huge theater in New York. And they said nobody went. They only filled the first seven rows. No way. Yeah. He said there was like a thousand empty seats for this movie because they didn't take the right release track. And so Henry Fonda, in order to get this movie made, he deferred his salary. You know, until we hit a profit, I won't take any money. So he never got paid for this movie. Hmm. Yeah. But even though he never got paid and he was extra mad at United Artists for what they did, he still said this was one of the three best movies he ever made. Hmm. And I would agree with that. Yeah, totally. I I think it's a great movie. But uh, Fonda never decided to produce another movie as a result of this one. So. Wow. I know, right? As a direct result. Like he said, because of how 12 Angry Men went. Yeah. That was like the last straw for him. That's crazy. That, that's interesting. Yeah. Of the one Henry Fonda movies I've ever seen, <laughs> I would say this, this is the best. best. This is the yeah. best one. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit. Uh, we've talked about how this movie has some political undertones to For it. Sure. So in the 1950s, I mean, obviously, we all know about Joseph McCarthy and his sort of witch hunt for communists and the, uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings that they called all these Hollywood screenwriters and, and actors and made them kind of rat on all their friends, right? We've right. talked about with Goodfellas, never rat on your friends. That's right. Um, and and Reginald Rose was so upset with what happened that he took this idea of 12 Angry Men and kind of conformed it to refute Joseph McCarthy. He said, in a way, almost everything I wrote in the 50s was about McCarthy. I was surprised I got away with the stuff I did. Television was so sensitive to criticism at that time. The network people were really petrified for their jobs. Yet they were also afraid of being that way. So sometimes we got things through. Huh. So they were really trying to push the limits and, and fight back against what they saw as an unfair violation of people's rights. That's interesting because watching this movie, I don't think I would have had any sense of McCarthyism mm-hmm. or communi- or anything in the writing or the shoot. It didn't really strike me as a movie that would that would make McCarthy upset. It's not overt. Yeah. It's definitely not overt, but I think when you when you start to look for it, you can definitely see it. You've okay. got this idea of, you know, a kid who may or may not have committed a crime, right? right. And it's it's about giving people the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Is he really a bad person? Did he really do this? Or are we all just going to have like this mob mentality and send hmm. somebody off to die, which is what they were doing with these people's careers because yeah. they got blacklisted. They, mm. they weren't allowed to work in Hollywood right. anymore. Well, I mean, unlike Goodfellas, I'll probably watch this movie quite a few more times in my life. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll have to look for that next time I go through. Next it. time you watch it. Sure. So 
that kind of takes us into a discussion of what do you think is the moral or the lesson to be learned from this movie? Because the way I see it, there's four or five different ways you can interpret this movie. And just one of them is, you know, the democratic process. Hmm. Like, I really do think it, it champions the ability of one person to make a difference. But I'm really curious to hear, how did you guys interpret this movie? And what did you think was the lesson they were trying to tell? Yeah, I think one of the main things, and this is something Jordan and I have talked about on our own time quite a bit, the idea that humans like to take the easy route. Mm-hmm. That in mm-hmm. the end, for some of the jurors, I feel like at the start when they kind of go through why each juror thinks he's guilty, a few of them are just kind of like, yeah, because he is. Yeah. Because because it seemed obvious because, you know, the woman saw it and the old man saw it and and they don't really think through logically the way Henry Fonda seems to. And so I think that definitely one of the main stories of the movie is the fact that humans like to take the easy route. They want to go watch the baseball game. Sure. They, they want to get home and just relax. And they don't Which wanna... is like really unsettling. You know, I think you walk out of this movie really happy that it played out the way it did. But right. then you kind of look at it and say, wow, is there any way that we can really have a fair trial? Yeah. Like if I'm on death row, you see well, Bob, what people you do. Well, you know, <laughs> may or may not have stabbed somebody. We'll find out. But, <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. But these people have their motivations and it's not always going to come out what their motivations are. And there's lives hanging in the balance, which I think gets to the question for the jurors of can human beings ever really be objective? Mm. It takes so long to drill down to their motivations in this movie. And by the end of it, everyone, like you said, everyone's sweaty. Everyone's tired. You know, juror number three is crumpled over on the table. Juror number 10 is not even looking at people anymore. It takes so much out of these people to get to a point where they can be objective that it's like life altering for some of them. Right. And I just don't see the average jury having that experience, you know, behind closed doors. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's the whole case. Well. Say something. You lousy bunch of bleeding hearts. You're not going to intimidate me. I'm entitled to my opinion. Rotten kids, you work your life out. Not guilty. I guess, do you guys know anybody who went through like an intense jury experience? Uh, our friend Randy, her dad went through jury duty. Okay. And what's interesting about jury duty is that you only have access to the evidence that's been given to you by the prosecution or by the defense. Right. Mm. And one of the, they had a key question that would have changed the way that they all thought about how it came out. But because they didn't have the answer to that question, they voted him guilty. Huh. And when he did his own research at the end of it, he found out that the opposite was true. Wow. And that he would have voted not guilty for that really? case. And he thinks the rest of his crew that were doing jury duty would have voted not guilty. Yeah. Oh, and he's terrible. still like 
thinks about it. Obviously, he is he doesn't carry that guilt because you can only do so much. There are right. boundaries to it, and you'd make the best decision you can in our democratic process. But that's scary. That's a scary it thought. It really is. And, you know, the, at some point, somebody asks juror number three, Lee J. Cobb, what makes this so personal? For, I actually think it's the immigrant yeah. that asks him, what makes this oh, so personal yeah. for you? And so people are kind of tapping into there's something holding you back from entertaining the facts fairly. Right. And you get this really great moment at the end where the foreman, he's not even on screen. The, the camera's on Cobb as he's like crumpled over. And you just hear him in the background just kind of say, um, we're ready now, you know. And it's like they don't know what to do. Because they all had to sort of like exercise their demons and get them all out there. Mm -hmm. These people, by the end of the movie, they know each other very, very well. Right. Even if they don't want to share it. They kind of had some intense therapy together. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. definitely. And I think you you pick up on that at the end when they have that wide shot of them leaving. Mm -hmm. And the dude asks for his name like, like, I don't want this relationship to end. Yeah. I want there to be a personal connection. I want this to matter for more than just that boy's life. I want it to be personal for me. You really champion being workmanlike. Right. Doing your job is something to be honored in this movie. And these people have a duty to do, and they do it, and then they just go on about their day. Yeah. As long as we're talking about how the film is interpreted, I think what's really fascinating is that Henry Fonda, if there's one thing you could characterize him as, is whatever is happening in this case, he cares significantly about the outcome. Yeah. So much that he's even willing to do a ton of outside work. Like, mm-hmm. I've watched this movie with a bunch of millennials, and they are totally zoned out because it's been black and white, and it's in one scene, yeah, sure. and their camera angles or whatever, until he bangs the knife on the table. Yeah. That is the easily... That's when a lot of people will sit up and go, oh, like, he did... He did legwork because he cares so much, which is contrasted from juror number seven. Right. I think there are three unredeemed characters in the movie, and juror number seven is one of the unredeemed characters because he flip-flops either way, whatever it takes for him Mm -hmm. to, like you were saying, be able to go to the baseball game. Yeah. And I really do believe that that's kind of a prophetic voice uh, at the expense of sounding like – at the danger of sounding like a millennial. Right. I think that that's a pretty prophetic voice for honestly how little we do care about some of these things. Sure. I think the script communicates the weight of the decision that they were trying to make. Mm-hmm. And I think the two most compelling characters are the ones who care the most. And the guy who wants to go to the baseball game, I think is most of us. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Who aren't involved and don't really care. And well, you know, we started off the podcast by saying, how many times have we been called a jury? Right. Yeah. We've all been called a jury. Right. Yeah. Got out of it. Yeah. Because exactly. we didn't want to go to jury. Yeah. Well, yeah. no one does. No. Yeah. So I have a couple questions to ask. And first of all, you know, having served on jury duty, they have interviewed a lot of, of judges and even Supreme Court justices about this movie. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor uh, gave a whole lecture on this movie. And she said a lot of this couldn't happen in real life. You, you couldn't. Okay. First of all, you couldn't sneak a knife past security. You, you <laughs> right. couldn't You couldn't submit that knife into evidence. What about 1957? Right. Well, maybe. But you still couldn't introduce it as, a, as an item to be considered. And that a lot of the things that they present as reasonable doubt don't really count as reasonable doubt really? legally. Yeah. Okay, reasonable doubt, you have to take into consideration like the full effect of all the arguments. And if there's a gaping hole in that, that's reasonable doubt. But the way they were nitpicking, you know... Is it possible? Marks on, <laughs> yeah. on someone's nose from glasses. Like, yeah. that really wouldn't constitute a reasonable doubt. Sure. So, I don't know if you could even have this sort of thing happen in real life, which mm. is sad because I watch this movie and I feel like 
yeah. fired up to do my duty as a person on a jury and that stand you, up for injustice. And, yeah. You know, yeah. It's almost like Sherlock Ian. I'm going to make up a word, but that's yeah, how they yeah. kind of present this evidence is like if Sherlock were there, he would have noticed all these things. Right. And Sherlock has kind of got a new renaissance in our era. Right. So I think it is really appealing to see like, yeah. oh, I noticed you have tiny little things on your nose. Sure. And I noticed that it takes 15 seconds for this thing to go before you can really see yeah. what's happening. It's sure. too loud, you know. So Benedict Cumberbatch will play juror number eight in the remake of this. Oh, that would be so good. I'd that watch it. That would be awesome. I'd watch it. Yeah. All right, so I want to get your takes, guys, because I think that if we're being 100% honest, that kid probably killed his dad. I don't know if I agree with that. You don't agree. You're convinced by juror doubt. number eight. I have a reasonable doubt. Yeah. So let me introduce into evidence a counter argument, all right? Northern Illinois University professor Russell Proctor has criticized juror number eight saying that although he engages in critical thinking about some issues, his logic is extremely poor about others. Juror number eight rewards only the jurors who agree with him, and he breaks those who disagree, clearly not impartial. Group pressure, which works against him at the beginning of the story, is actually the tool that Fonda uses to end up getting his adversaries to cave in. Hmm. And by he says, by attending to the maintenance needs of the old man and the other quiet jurors, Fonda turns the tide of conformity into his favor. The moral of the story is not necessarily the triumph of good over evil because the defendant's innocence is still unclear at the film's conclusion. Instead, what the story demonstrates is that persuasion in groups can take place through a variety of methods. And Fonda's method is as worthy of scrutiny as any of the others. I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, and I noticed it on this watch. Yeah. He definitely isn't impartial and he definitely, even if he means well. Taking care of the old man, doing stuff like that. He he gets really excited when someone gets on his side. And he really likes to use group favor uh, to turn the tide as well. He has a great way of almost like a familial, like, welcome to the family right. of not guilty members. And and it's not overt. It's not strong. But that's why it's powerful. Sure. Is because it's an undertoned kind of like love and affection that people are like, yeah, I want to be a part of that group now. So do you get the sense from his character, though, that when people introduce opposite evidence that he's unwilling? I feel like and I could just be reading into it, but I feel like his character enters into a place of humility that when people do have opposite evidence, he doesn't immediately go, well, you're wrong. And here's the whole group of people like the other ones do. I think he it seems like his character gives it real thought, right. but then just introduces the opposite perspective and says, well, this really seems convincing to me. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that he's like a, a a terrible person, but I do think he manipulates and mm-hmm. we all do it, you know. Sure, sure, sure. But at the end of the movie, so right before juror number three breaks down and he's the only one left, there's a way to read that scene where Henry Fonda is like leading the charge in a sort of mob mentality because yeah. he looks right at him and says, we're not convinced he, he changes the language that was used against him and he, he puts it right back on him. Right. And he's essentially doing the same thing that all the other people were doing to him at the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. which I don't know. Does he redeem that method or is he just as as guilty of doing those things? Yeah. And that's why at the start I said, I don't know if Fonda's character comes into this with an open mind mm-hmm. or a convinced that he is not guilty. Right. Mind. Because the way he attacks each person's. Uh, argument for why he is guilty is very pointed. Sure. It's very uh, personal to those people. And so he comes at these at each juror 
very individually. He attacks the logic of juror number four. He attacks the feelings of juror number two. Also, how have we not talked about juror number two at all? I he, loved juror the number high two. Dude. Yeah, the high-pitched <laughs> voice guy. Well, I don't know. I yeah. just think he did it. All right, Mickey Mouse. I liked him. Uh, yeah, but yeah, so Fonda, I I really wondered at certain points. I was like, man, he, he does feel a little diabolical, mm-hmm. like a mastermind. Mm-hmm. Like he's just slowly got all these like marionette puppets that he's just working against each other. Yeah. I get the sense, and again, I, I guess I am on the side of Henry Fonda, and I really enjoy his character, but I get the sense that it's kind of, it feels like a progressive revelation that he, even though he is convinced of the opposite side of at least a reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. that he enters in with them and sh- and walks with them through. He's like, well, you know what would be helpful is if we knew how long it took to get from the bed to the front door, sure, and then they right. act that out. I don't think he knew how long that was going to take before he did it. Right. But, you know. Counselors. I would like to hear your closing arguments on this movie. Let's let's say just 30 seconds a piece. Final thoughts, anything you haven't been able to say yet, and then give it your score out of 10. I struggle with giving it a 10 out of 10 because it's so clearly a adaptation from a play into a movie. Uh-huh. Um, I think a lot of parts of the movie you can tell. Just the fact that it's one room mm-hmm. with a lot of characters that all kind of get equal time. But either way, I would give it a 9... Nine and a half out of ten. Okay. A phenomenal movie. Yeah. Jordan? My favorite movies are movies that you can have discussions about afterwards, discussions like this. Those make me excited. And it hits on themes that I'm really passionate about and things I care about. Um, I think the acting is good. I don't think there's a line wasted. And I enjoy watching it with people. Yeah. So I'd give it like a similar to Brad, like somewhere in the range of a 9.5 or up. It'd be hard to give it a 10 because I don't know what a perfect movie is. Sure. But I will never not want to watch it. Yeah, I don't think there is a perfect movie. I yeah. think you can find something flawed in everything. Even I, though you gave Goodfellas a 10 out of 10. I, I, well, you can still give a movie a 10 and Gross. recognize that. Yeah, I know, right? How, how dare I? <laughs> I think, Movies can't be perfect, but Goodfellas a 10 yeah. out of 10. <laughs> there is something to be said about a movie that was made 60 plus years ago that still holds up. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't rely on the conventions of the day. It relies on something much more universal than that. Yes. I think this movie speaks to a universal truth about what the democratic process means to us as Americans. So I would give it a 10 out of 10. I think it's a, a great classic film. Definitely worth a rewatch, Brad. Yeah, I would I would rewatch it many, many times. But what do you guys think? We'd love to hear your feedback on 12 Angry Men or if you still have lingering anger towards my co-host Brad. And his thoughts about Goodfellas. <laughs> Honest, true thoughts about Goodfellas. Hit us up on Twitter at Film Whiskey, Whiskey with an E. Or, you know what? We've actually just set up a dial-in, call-in line. If you guys want to leave us a voicemail, we'll play it on the air. Give us a call. The number is 216-800-5923. That's 216-800-5923. We will be back next week talking about the 1951 musical An American in Paris. Until then, I'm Bob. I'm Brad. And I'm Jordan. And this has been Film Film and Whiskey. Whiskey.